I don't know how many of you watched with, um, as, as I did Wednesday, but the 9-11 remembrances that were going on. The main one, of course, is at the site of the former towers. It's now the Freedom Tower, I think. And they gather each year there, and they read the names, and they hold different kinds of ceremonies there to remember 9-11. As I was watching some of that Wednesday and what occurred, and kind of the retelling of the story and the sharing of pictures and the names, remembering what happened 18 years ago, I, I was uh, struck with this thought. They were actually doing what, what Joshua 4 did with the stones. Now, they did it in reverse order. They were tangibly creating a memorial to remember a tragedy. In Joshua 4, he takes the stones and he creates a memorial to remember a victory. But I think underneath all of it is a principle that, that is very helpful to create markers and moments and, and you call it, I use the air quotes here, stones to remember important things that you don't want to forget. We did that last week. We celebrated 15 years of God's work among us. Pictures and stories and different ways we kind of uh, tangibly got our hands around what was, we were celebrating. And that's good. But today is week one of year 16. And I don't want to look back. I want to look forward with you. What would it take for God, uh, for, for us to experience and participate in God's continuing work? It's one thing to celebrate his work of the past. And it's a good thing. But what would it take for us to participate in God's continuing work? I want to revisit the text in Joshua 4 and with a little bit of repetition bring before you two non-negotiable elements that we must have in this body in order to participate in God's continuing work. So take your Bibles, would you? Turn to Joshua chapter 4. Let's revisit that text one more time. I have put the start of our Mark series, or I should say our re-entry into Mark, off just one more week to revisit this text, to understand more about how we can see God continue his work here for another 15 years or 25 or 115 if he wills. And they're going to, from this text will emerge two attitudes that we really must embrace. Let me read the text for it in its entirety. If you, some of the assumptions I'll make as we read it are in last week's message. I'd encourage you to maybe go by our website, hear that. It's only about eight or 10 minutes last week, believe it or not. So you can catch up on kind of the, the details of this text at least. Here's these few verses, Joshua 4, 19. The Bible says that the people, speaking of the children of Israel, they came up out of the Jordan, the Jordan River, on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. That's their first stop after crossing the Jordan River. Now, the previous part of the chapter talks about how they had sent a representative from every tribe into the Jordan River to pick up a stone, and they brought that stone from the Jordan River that was dry when they were crossing. They set it in Gilgal. This is what this means in verse 20. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. 
Keep in mind, a couple of miracles happened in the crossing of the Jordan. Not only did the waters divide and stand up um, on, their, on each side, the water in the riverbed was dry. So multiple miracles as they crossed over. And then verse 23 says this, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. I want you to draw a line at the end of verse 23 or draw, uh, create kind of a, a dividing marker because I think from 19 to 23 we have our first attitude kind of revealed and the first principle in play and then verse 24 gives us the second one. So just kind of make a dividing line there mentally or in your Bible. The Bible goes on in verse 24 to say this, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Two attitudes I think are, are crucial as we look to participating in God's continuing work and they come again from these stones in Joshua 4. Here's the first attitude that has to be present in our church. First of all, we must realize that stones remind us to be committed to passing the baton to the next generation. In fact, will you look with me at verse 23 for a moment? I, I mentioned this last week at 8.30 I did not mention this at 10.30 for one good reason. I just forgot. Uh, but I want you to notice some interesting words here that show us an implied transition. And we'll talk more about that for a few moments. Look with me at verse 23. The fathers are to say to the children that the stones represent what God did for you. Notice that word there. For you when you crossed the, Red, the, the Jordan River. Do you see that? And then he says that you ought to tell your children, this is what God did for us when we crossed the Red Sea. In other words, God did something for us at the Red Sea, and now God is doing something for you at the Jordan River. There's, a, there's an interesting use of, of pronouns here. Joshua's saying, tell your kids that the Jordan River's for them. This is their moment. It's the generation 40 years after they left uh, Egypt. Some folks who were not even around at the Red Sea that generation had died off. I think Paul says their bones were scattered in the wilderness. So here is Joshua telling the fathers, hey, when, when they ask you, what do these stone means? stones mean? You tell them, this is God's work for you and your generation, just as the, the Red Sea was God's work for us in our generation. And what you find in here is this beautiful, watch this now, mutual baton kind of moment where where they're saying, we know what God's done for us. Here's what God's done for you. And it's, it's this handing of, of, of God's work among them from one generation to the next. And what I love about this is you don't find this mob of angry older generation people. Well, I'll be done when you kick me out of here and I'm dead and gone. You don't find this arrogant group of young people saying, give me, give me. You find this beautiful mutual relationship of handing the baton, saying God's worked in our midst, God's worked in your midst. Let's continue to see that generation after generation. I think the implied, the implied principle is that stones remind us that we must be committed to passing the baton to the next generation. We're not the last ones on the scene. This is describing our future perspective. And it's rooted in the words, for you and for us. And I would add to this, it seems that the text implies this as well, 
that it's incumbent upon the older generation to remind the younger generation of this. Joshua's saying to the fathers, you tell your children of this. Here's what God's done for us. Here's what God's done for you. And, 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 and in one sense, kind of handing this baton, saying, you've got to tell your kids next. This is one of the reasons that we make it a point periodically and regularly to share the vision of First Family Church with, with you, the people. Both young in the younger generation and older generations. So that we don't forget. And so that those in the younger generation can continue to see and hear, oh, this is what God's doing here. And can graciously accept that baton of leadership uh, as the years progress. Now, that doesn't mean that methods can't change. I'm actually glad that they do. So I would be one in that older generation, but I'm glad that, that the younger ones coming up behind us as they graciously receive the baton of leadership in this church, I'm glad they know they have the freedom to change the methods to reach their generation and the one coming after them. Because methods do need to change. What doesn't change is the message. And that's what we are so, so adamant that we instill and guard and pass on accurately, solidly, theologically sound. In fact, can I just review for you a little bit of what God's done here as far as the vision of First Family Church that he's given us? We swim primarily in what we call three ponds. Some of you who have been here for multiple years will recognize this. If you're new, this is a great opportunity to kind of understand what we do here. We say that we swim in the pond of First Family Church, First Family Extended, First Family Global, you can kind of see that as far as like maybe our immediate area, the field God has placed us in, and then perhaps our state and the regional area, and then, of course, globally. Within those concentric circles, though, you find that the, the, the pebble that matters the most in the pond, to be frank with you, is that center one. If the church itself is not a strong tree, it won't bear good fruit. Are you with me? And so we put a lot of our energies and resources into this initial deeper circle of reaching and teaching people in our community for God's glory. We love the way God's allowed us to plant churches and send missionaries. Those are all things that we love to, to support. In fact, you can say these concentric circles represent a sending culture at our church. In every facet, we are, we are about multiplication. And yet we know that if we're not multiplying in the center circle, we're not going to be extending God's work or even seeing it happen globally. And so we put a lot of energy into First Family Church, and there's three words we've used for years to describe what God is doing here and the habits that come from Acts chapter 2 in the work he's doing here. We say this, we celebrate, we grow, and we serve. And in the recent years, we've added some modifiers to those words. In fact, would you say them with me? We celebrate the gospel, we grow in community, and we serve the mission. So that represents our large group gatherings, our small group gatherings, our ministry teams. And these three phrases, these three words really succinctly summarize what for 15 years and now the first week of year 16 is going on here by God's grace in First Family. And this is what we want, watch this, want to transfer to the next generation. That gathering with God's people matters. Could how we do that and where we do that, could that change? Sure. But the gathering of God's people has been going on since the beginning of the church. So we, we, we keep the message central, the primary thing, the main thing. But man, we leave room for, for methods of change as we hand the baton off. The same thing with growing a community, serving the mission. So understand, we, we, we really want to see the vision continue beyond year 15. If we talk about it. Now, you may ask yourself, well, 
are there other tangible ways the vision can kind of be felt? Is it just simply a chart? Is it a set of verbal words? Or are there some tangible ways that the younger generation can get a feel for the vision at first time? Well, there probably are. I think there may be multiple ideas. Here's one that we're going to try in November that I think will help us kind of get our hands dirty with the vision, especially if you're relatively new or perhaps you've been sitting in the corners of the shadows as a spectator. Beginning November 3rd, for one week only, we're going to be involved in what we call Development Week. Now, let me see if I can give you a paradigm of what Development Week is briefly, kind of a 30,000-foot view, by giving you something you know so you can get to the unknown, okay? Many of you are aware of a job fair, right? You've seen, you've seen a job fair, or maybe a, in church life, a ministry fair. In years past, there are big collections of tables, and there's sheets of paper with things called a pen, and, and you'd go by all these booths, and you sign up to serve somewhere in the nursery or as a greeter or in the prayer ministry or a musician, the sound booth, or as a small group leader, just all kinds of ways. Like a job for you, go and you check things out, right? You see maybe where your interests are. And so it's in the same vein as that. Development Week is really, it's an opportunity for you to experience, to experiment, we'll even call it, to kind of get your hands dirty in an area that you sense, you know, I have some interest there. Maybe God would have me serve there. And our, our primary goal, now, now watch this, this get a little uncomfortable, it'll be good for us. Our primary goal is to really increase the ranks of servers here at First Family. Those who perhaps are thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm growing in a small group, I, I, like, I like attending, but you've yet to kind of go to the kitchen and help with the dishes. Our goal is to say, hey, where are those who, who have yet to kind of get in the kitchen with us? And, and instead of like prodding you with a long pole and making you feel guilty, just say, hey, could you sometime this week maybe find a place and shadow a current leader? Could you do that? And just see if, hey, this, this, this works, this fits, I like this. So we're going to try this. On so that week, as many ministry positions that need a server as possible, as many as possible, Try to have someone in there shadowing that person, uh, participating with them in that, in that role. Now, it won't be able to be done perfectly across the board. Here's why. There's some areas of ministry here that we just need to make sure that we don't have someone practicing that week. Okay, can I say it to you that way? Our children's ministry is one of those. We probably can't afford to have the entire set of children's classes kind of experimented with. Could I hear an amen on that? Good. But it is an opportunity, let's say, if, if Joe wanted to, to go with Craig and say, Craig, I know you teach second grade. Can I, can I just be with you and watch you? I think I might feel really drawn to helping in the children's ministry. Can I just see how you do it? That'd be a great opportunity. There may be some areas in children's work where there is some area, and Becky and her team will decide all that. Same thing with youth small groups. Uh, I know that across the board, I've instructed our staff. We've talked about it for a good bit. We want to see as many of the opportunities, roles, positions in which we're serving on that week, starting Sunday the 3rd through the, that Friday or Saturday. And could we just say, hey, jump in and, and, and experience what it's like to serve in an area where you might have some interest. Maybe it's up here on the, with the worship team. Maybe it's back in the booth. Maybe it's a small group. In fact, our small group that week, Rush, you're going to split right in two. Instead of letting one of our co-leaders just lead, we're going to say, hey, group, why don't we go ahead and split into two groups this week and practice what it looks like to multiply. And so we'll just have two different homes. We'll meet in two different places and We'll just let some guys practice leading in, in that way. So my goal is this. I think people are, are much more apt to say, I'm all in, when they've gotten their hands around it. 
in more than just a verbal way or audible way, but when they actually see it and touch it and feel it, it becomes tangible. So just kind of mark that down mentally. Maybe make a note on your paper somewhere. November 3rd is the beginning of development week. And if you are in a ministry area, start looking around for someone that you can invite into your sphere of ministry and say, hey, here's why we do what we do. Here's how we do it. Join me and maybe God will lead you to work in this area as well. Maybe God will join you to uh, lead to serve in this way. Does that make sense? In fact, I would encourage you to look in your small group this week at who's not serving regularly at First Family. Look around the auditorium. Look in the cafe. And let's see if we can increase the ranks of those who are serving so that we continue to hand the baton. I especially want to say this to our, to our young eagles in the church. We have some. We have some dynamic young eagles in the younger generation that God's prepping and building. They're hungry. They're humble. Look for some of them. Maybe some elders would look at maybe some young men who have a desire to be elders and say, hey, during this week, maybe come to our elders' prayer time. Come to our Tuesday morning study of the word and just kind of be a fly on the wall and see what it's like to, to, to be with the elders and to, and to engage in this task of shepherding and um, the ministry of the word and prayer on a regular basis. Maybe some of our deacons would find some young deacon eagles and say, hey, join us for our deacons meeting and see how we handle and delegate and oversee all the physical aspects of our church. In fact, maybe go on a few calls with me. Maybe it's involved in a benevolence or something and just kind of be able to fly on the wall in that. Every area we can, can we invite someone in during development week and say, hey, here's what's going on. Watch, learn, participate, especially our young eagles, because I'll promise you this, young eagles are going to find somewhere to fly. They won't watch forever. Let's create some platforms, some areas, some space for hungry, humble young leaders, both men and women, to say, oh, so that's how I can lead at First Family. That's how I can serve at First Family. Give them some pictures of what it looks like. And watch God can you to mold us into a baton-handing kind of people. Where you don't have one generation possessively trying to avoid the other one. Or the other one trying to grab unnecessarily the other one. But people working together. And I, I'm confronted with this the older I get. I'm 55. It's not that old. But I'm confronted that my time as pastor here has an expiration date. I know that. And I don't want to wait until the last minute for like an albatross to the church. And they're like, man, who's next? What are we going to do? Well, hurry, scurry and find a name. I like to be involved in the process to ensure good transitions, effective leadership. So our best days are still ahead of us. Does that make sense? I'm facing this with you. It's not an easy conversation. But if we're going to see God continue to work in the next 15 plus years, we have to embrace an attitude that's, that says we're committed to passing the baton to the next. Not only that, though, we must also realize that stones remind us to be consumed with God's ultimate aim, which is his glory to all peoples. This is the second attitude we have to embrace. And I find this in verses, really the last verse, verse 24. Remember I told you to draw that line after verse 23? Look at your Bibles with me. The very beginning words of verse 24 are so that. This is the first time in this chapter that we find these words of purpose. I reviewed this with you last week. It's this, this phrase of, of result. In other words, why is there such a generational focus? Why do we hand the baton off well? Why are we insistent that we, we create good, smooth transitions 
From generation to generation, why do we remind our kids? Why are moms and dads telling their kids and then those kids telling their kids? Here's the answer. Church, let this move your heart. Look what the Bible says to us. Verse 24. In other words, 19 through 23 happens so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord, your God, forever. You see, I'm, I'm stoked that our church has a generational feel and a generational commitment. Amen. But it cannot reside just to our generations. It must also go to the nations. God's heart is for all the peoples of the earth to know his glory, his might, his power. And so an attitude that must be present from week one of year 16 and forward, as it has been so far, is this attitude. We must be consumed with God's ultimate aim, his glory to all peoples. Now I want you to take a moment and think about this word glory for a moment. Because you're probably already saying, well, Todd, that's not in this verse anywhere. Did you just make that up? Why are you telling me that God's glory matters and should go to all people? I don't see that in here. Glory is a good summary word for the words in this verse as well as other words in other texts. In other words, it describes God's power, his might, his works. When all of that kind of combines and people sense it and feel it and know it, it rests on them, it weighs on them, that's a moment of understanding, experiencing God's glory. In fact, watch this. The word glory actually means weight. It's the word doxa in Greek. And when you say we're going to do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, what you're actually saying is you're going to live every part of your life so that God's weight is felt. That's what you're saying. When you say, man, I, I really sense God's glory, what you're saying is I'm sensing God's weight on me. All of his power, his might, his works. And so I think the word glory is a very biblical summary word to describe what Joshua here is saying. That all the peoples, all the nations around them would know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and they would fear the Lord. In other words, God's glory would really weigh in on them. This is what Psalm 96 declares. It echoes this very thing from Joshua 4. Look at Psalm 96 with me. In fact, would you read these verses with me? Let's read together, can we? Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Do you see the beginning word glory there is what we're to declare? And then you see the descriptive words, these synonyms, so to speak, marvelous works, his greatness, and the result is this fearing among all peoples. It sounds very similar to Joshua 4. So understand this, church. We must not only embrace an attitude that says we're going to hand the baton off. We're committed to that. We're going to have generations working together. This is what the stones remind us about. But we must realize that those, as those generations work together, then the, the ultimate aim is God's glory to all peoples, not just our generations, but all the nations, this has always been God's heart and it remains true to this day. Now let me just clearly define for you what is one of God's primary marvelous works. We see that phrase in Psalm 96, don't we? What is his marvelous work? Here's the primary one. 
that God redeems sinners. Is that not music to your ears? I mean, it's the gospel. It's what we gather every week to celebrate. But it is the work that's described throughout the Bible from beginning to end. In symbolic form throughout the Old Testament, in the redemption from Exodus, they're bringing back from captivity in Babylon, the coming of the Messiah, then God's uh, spirit falling at Pentecost. I mean, you see God's people being redeemed to God. And all that's possible because God loved us, sent his son to die for us and take our place. See, this is the greatest news of all, church, that you and I, you and I were separated from God. Our sin caused that. We've inherited that from Adam. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, welcome to sin. It's never fair. But here's how loving and just God is. God saw that we were at war with him, that our sin had created a chasm that we could not cross. And God took the first step. He took the initiative. He sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to become a man. And as a man, he was fully human, and yet as God, he was perfectly divine. As such, he could take our place as our substitute, but he could pay our debt as God. And Jesus Christ did what no one in this room could ever do. He paid your sin debt. Isn't God gracious? Isn't Jesus beautiful? And this is what he did for us. This is his marvelous work. And this is the work that God wants to declare to all peoples. Now, as I say that, I don't think anybody here argues with that theologically. I I don't doubt that for a minute. You're all like, on board. We're with you, Todd. Amen. I think, however, we share this in common, that often in our life we forget that truth practically and locally. We get really sidetracked and busy, don't we? We get enamored with what we think is most important and valuable. Our life, our career, our hobbies. And we forget that God's ultimate aim is that all the peoples of the world would feel his weight. Now watch this. I'm not asking you to quit dance class, quit going to college, chunk your jobs, move to Montana, bury your head, head, build a white temple, and wait for the Lord to come back with no relations. I'm not asking you to do that, okay? I want you to keep your jobs, stay involved with your friends, play soccer, go to dance class, stay in the university. I want you to have a lot of lost friends. I, I want you to actually stay very engaged in our culture. But I want you to do it with this goal in mind that these are really an ends to a mean. Getting God to people who don't know him. His name to all the peoples. His weight. His glory pressing in on those who've yet to know him. See, that's when we realize, oh, I'm here for a definite purpose, for a definite reason. But this is not the end game. My job, my career, my, my house, my children, my hobbies. Those are all means to making sure people see that the difference Jesus Christ has made in my life, how his glory is waiting on every single hobby, possession, relationship. God, would you help that to occur in all of what I'm doing so that people hear about your name? When that occurs, 
man, we're, we're living with God's heart as our heart. Like I said, I think sometimes we forget that locally and practically. and We get enamored with our own world. And so what happens is the creation of little idols. We think there are significant, you know, other. They're going to bring us meaning. All they do is eventually choke us to death. I'm trying to help you see something that for a church to go beyond where it is from year 16 and 4 to say we want to see God continue to do his work how do we participate in that we have to be consumed with God's ultimate aim his glory to all peoples and this is precisely why when it comes to applying this locally we have to find a better word for small groups that are full, then the word closed. Now, can I have a conversation with you about that for a few minutes? We're going to be on some thin ice, okay? But I want to bring this truth to bear upon this issue with us. Not in a judgmental tone, and for sure not in a know-it-all tone. But I want to have a conversation about something that I think is not leaning in the best direction. First of all, I think using the word closed to describe small groups that either have too many people or perhaps aren't necessarily full but just kind of aren't open, I guess, I think it's a false choice and a false conversation. Because if I were to ask anyone in our church, hey, do you think we can close our doors? Do we even close groups? I don't think their heartbeat is to say, yep, I can't come in. Sorry. You know, it's, I don't think that's the heart of anybody. I think there's logistical issues that occur that suddenly we're faced with realities. Like, wow, I don't have enough room in my house or um, we don't have enough room in the basement for the 45 kids that accompany the, you know, 26 adults. Uh, Suddenly you're faced with all these logistical issues and so you feel like the only option is to close a group. And so if the conversation becomes about closing a group or opening a group, we're going to have a false conversation and a false choice because it's going to pit people against each other. I'm not interested in that conversation. I don't for a moment believe that there's people who, who want to keep people out. I think there's, we're, we're all trying to juggle some logistical issues we don't know how to juggle well. I'm in that boat, okay? I don't have an answer here, but I have the responsibility to lead us through some things and try to get the right people at the table, so to speak, for the conversation. And I don't think the word closed is the right word for the conversation. In fact, I would draw it out for you like this. Look at this diagram I drew out. I, I share this with our staff a little bit. What is an other-centered small group? What's a small group that, at first find me, that is actually uh, aligning to our values? I don't think we should use the words open and closed. Because see, on one side, folks say, well, if you say I can't be closed, Todd, if I can't regulate who attends and, and try to limit my size, you just want total chaos, don't you? That's not what I want for any group, and you don't either. So we're kind of projecting something on someone. The other side of the fact is if we say, well, you, you just want a group that's closed and strict parameters and no one's welcome, that's not what they're wanting. I'm projecting something on them or, other, or the other side may be. We need to get rid of that kind of conversation and realize that what we're talking about is how do we balance values at First Family with the realities of our life? And when we have values with our small groups, one is that they are welcoming groups, okay? We've always had this posture. Watch me. We've always had this posture at First Family. Look around here at at the room and people who've been here since the beginning. We've always said this. 
open-armed. I see somebody nodding right now. She's like, yeah, I remember that from the days of Ankeny Christian. You're welcome to be in this body and, and this small group. We want to make sure that you know what we believe. And if you believe, you can join us. I mean, those, those are, that's an open-armed posture. And yet, let's be honest, there are some distinctives that matter. Wouldn't you agree with that? Like, for instance, if you have a small group, I think one of them should be that it's what? Small. It's kind of logical, right? So, so we have to admit we're in kind of a dilemma here. How can we remain welcoming, which is a value, and yet distinctive, which is a value? So I don't have a solution. I have some ideas. I've talked to some folks about them. But I have a responsibility mainly. And that is to encourage you and me to realize that the, the conversation between closed and open, man, that's not healthy for a church. So I don't want, if you have a large group, my son and my son-in-law both have large groups over the limit. So I'm talking to, to people in the room that I have to eat lunch with later. And the next week, I'm not coming at anybody. I'm really not. And I'm not coming at uh, the ones really who have large groups. I think they are welcoming and they're distinctive. They're trying to figure this out. In fact, they've left their group open because that's why they're so large. So I don't think there's any attitude at play here that's negative. I think there's logistical issues again. And we had some in the first service. And if, you know, I'll probably get some misinterpretation. I'll probably get some kickback. Just kind of speak for me from both services. My heart is that we avoid a cliff that we can't recover, falling off a cliff we can't come back from, okay? We must start using language that describes our groups and the values we hold. How do we act as a welcoming group when you're really full, your living room's crowded, you've got more kids than you can, those are tough issues. I don't have an answer. And yet, how can you remain distinctive? Like, you know what? It's not really a small group if you've got 22 adults in there. I actually agree with that. That's a hard discussion to have to really build community and accountability. Now, here's what we can't do. We can't say, well, I'm just going to pick my people, and that'll be, that will be small. You see, small groups at First Family actually have distinctives. Like the elders laid out in 2006, they are the primary shepherding arm of our church. We sent a letter to the whole church explaining this. They're the main discipling arm. It, discipleship happens in other arenas, yes, but first, family, small groups are primarily about shepherding, discipling, accountability, fellowship, those things. So if you, if you just want a friend group, I say more power to you, just don't call it a small group. In other words, you can't have a friend group and say, we're, only, we're just only open to us four, no more, and then kind of ask for an FFC approval rating. That doesn't work that way. A small group has distinct parameters, distinct uh, uh, purposes and so we have to be willing to say how can I fulfill these distinctives while remaining welcoming I admit to you this is a a difficult conversation but I'm willing to have it and lead it with you because it matters here's the cliff that we can't afford to fall over and I don't think we're here by the way but it's what's prompted me to bring this to our attention and if you're new I hope you'll appreciate this if you're not new I hope you'll appreciate this Here's the cliff we can't afford to fall over. Once you ring the bell in your community that your church is cliquish, you can hardly recover from it. I'm looking at you nodding, and you know I'm telling you the truth, and that hurts, grieves my heart to think about that for our church, when we've always been this way. God's given us his growth, and we're thankful for it. And I would, I would not want to Press the door closed out of my, 
because my comfort zone is suddenly messed with. Does that make sense? If we go over the cliff of clickishness, it's very difficult to recover. Let me give you an example of how this happens. And I just hope you'll hear this well. I don't think that leaders are intentionally, including me, I don't think we're trying to make this happen. We've put you in this position to some degree. But let me give you an example of how this happens. A guest will visit our website before they ever visit our church, first of all. It's 100% true. I shouldn't say 100%. It's generally true. Most visitors I talk to every week, how'd you hear about First Family? I looked on the line. And the vast majority of folks that visit this church have already visited us digitally. They've checked out a portion of our messages, how things work, who our leadership is, and they've looked at small groups. And can you imagine the feeling a newcomer gets, whether they're saved or not, if the consistent message on small groups is closed, closed, closed. Does that resonate with you? It doesn't send the best message. Now, are there legitimate reasons that's happening? Yes, first of all, that's the only word our leaders have to choose from right now. And that's not even our desire. It's probably within the program of the database we're using. We can't use the word full, apparently. We can't use um, other options. We have this one word closed, and it seems to be what's been used. And, and I tell you, it's a terrible first impression. Can I be that transparent with you? Can I be that honest with you? Can I be this honest that I don't know if I have an answer, but I've tasked Travis and Chris and other folks, like, hey, help us figure this out. There's got to be a way that we can be welcoming and yet distinctive so that our community that God has placed us in for the purpose of making sure his name is known among all peoples, to make sure they don't think, don't go to that church, you can never get in that club. You see, you only get one chance to really ring a bell. You know that, right? That's why when we opened this building, the debate was, do we charge folks who want to use it? I remember this debate very well among our leadership. When all was said and done, God led us in a unanimous fashion that it would be much wiser for us to just simply charge like a deposit fee for something that breaks. Or if you rent it on a regular basis, you could, there's a cost to cover with the cleaning and stuff. But for one-time users, for two-time users, for a party or for a sports club or for a karate exhibition, for our community just to say, hey, can I borrow it? We're not going to charge. Some have estimated that's probably forty to $60,000 a year that we're spending towards our mission, by the way. It's an investment. But you know how many times you can ring that bell? It, you have one chance to say to your community, hey, come use our place. It's a tool, not a treasure. You have one chance. And I'm so thankful to God that when we, up, we opened these doors, we didn't have a, a list of all the prices it would take to rent the building. I'm glad that for the most part, we said, hey, if you want to use the tool God's given us, help yourself. We'll, we have a few little incidentals, but we're not trying to make money off this building. And man, our community has heard that well. Would you agree with that? A lot of different folks use it for different purposes. I thank the Lord for that. By his grace, he's done that. I think the same principle applies here. We don't have a ton of shots to say to our community, man, you're welcome here. Is it difficult when you have a group of 26 18, you've got a tribe of kids that come along with that. Is it difficult to know what to do? It is, but here's what I'd recommend as a starting point. I'll just, let's take our group, for example. We're right at the max, and it's not that much, about 14 or 15. But let's say we're going to leave it open. Someone signs up. So I think a conversation is the next step. Like, hey, you know, Josh, all you signed up, love to have you. Just be aware that we're pretty packed, 
you can come, love to have you, but we're thinking about how we're going to be able to, to kind of multiply our group already. I don't want you to be surprised by that. I didn't want you to come in and suddenly find that the new group starting next week and which one are you in. I just want you to have a heads up. We're really packed. We'd love to have you, but we're thinking about how we can solve this. I think that conversation says we're welcoming, but we're distinctive. Are you with me? Now, there may be other solutions, but probably better solutions. I'm simply asking for this. Can we not communicate the word closed to people in our church who are new, to each other who aren't new, or to our community? I don't think a lot of good comes out of use of that word. You know why? Because it seems to communicate the opposite of what the meta-narrative in the Bible is all about. That God loves people. That his invitation is to all who would come in repentance and faith. I hope you've heard this well. I hope I've said it well. I don't know if I have. I've been really nervous. My mouth is very dry, okay? I'm trying to communicate to you something that is on my heart. I believe the best about you. Same with the 830 crowd. I believe the best about them. All of our leaders are superb people. They want the best. They're trying to figure out their issues too logistically. I get up just as we are. Could we at least agree there's got to be better language than closed and open? Instead, welcoming and distinctive. So that, here's that word again, right? So that those who have yet to hear of the Lord can hear of him. Peoples of the earth may know about God's glory, and it will weigh on them. Imagine the weight of God's glory on someone who comes into a crowded room, is not sure how to make it work, but you're willing to do whatever you can to try to figure it out. Man, they'll probably think, we must matter. Our presence is important. You care about people. All that's going to just kind of be translated. In the middle of the mess, God can do amazing things. And I'm asking our church to kind of get their hands around this mess called small groups. And it's not just the large ones, by the way. You can sense closeness even in small groups, can't you? There's only one letter difference between close and closed, the letter D. And I've used that oftentimes to remind us that it doesn't take much to get from a close group to a closed group. It's not a matter of how many people you have. It really depends on the kind of attitude you have. And the attitude I'm asking for us to have, which I think exists already, and we're just kind of experiencing the difficulties in navigating is this. Man, people matter, and God's glory to all peoples matter. Let's make sure that we don't accidentally, unintentionally communicate that we're closed. As I thought about communicating this, I was reminded of a, a conversation I had with a church planter years ago. He was ex extolling to me the, the excitement of him planting a church with his best friends. He said, man, it's just going to be so great, you know, these two other couples, and we're going to have all this time together, and we'll plant the church, we'll all be on staff. It would just be us three. I mean, it'll be awesome. My heart was a little grieved. And so I cautioned him. I said, you know, the point of a church plant isn't maintenance of your friendships. It's a multiplication and discipleship. He looked at me kind of funny. I said, I just want to caution you. If you hold too tightly to your existing relationships, you're not going to have any room for the new people that God brings into your life. And he could tell he was like, oh. I'm like, your plate's going to just be packed full of people who don't know the Lord, people who do know the Lord and need a place to connect. What are you going to do? I just really urged him to consider strongly not denying friendships or not even just to, not to deny that he needs them. I think his friendships were kind of like the idol of the church plant. 
Like, let's, let's get a church plant. We'll get them all on staff. And it'll just be us three. And man, we'll just grow all together. That's a nice thought. But churches like that don't grow. People aren't saved in churches like that. They become a club. And I told him, I said, remember, Jesus didn't die so that your friend group could have a club where you're comfortable. Jesus died so that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We ended the conversation well. He thought long and hard about really what he was up to. I think in some ways we're kind of at that precipice. Why are we here? Why do our small groups exist? And can I urge you with humility and ignorance on this issue? Can we begin to work and have a conversation that leads us to figuring out how we can be welcoming and yet distinctive? Does that make sense? And can we agree that if we just want a friend group, man, start one. Meet on a different night of the week. Go for it. Have friends. But small groups are something far even deeper and more meaningful. Multiplication is part of the process. Discipleship, accountability, biblical community. It's part of what's going on here. So there's some parameters and distinctives, and yet there's some welcoming atmosphere. Could we enter into that together and try to figure that out for the sake of the name of God to those who don't know yet? In fact, I would say it to you like this in a nutshell. Would you be relay-minded and others-centered? That's what it's going to require if we're going to participate in God's continuing work for the next 10, 15, 25, 100 years. A church must be relay-minded. Who's next in line? Who does the baton go to? Who's getting trained? Who's being developed? Who's the next leader? Where's the next worker? We come not to be served, but to serve like Jesus did. So we're relay-minded and we're others-centered. We're thinking, who doesn't know yet? Like, can I just share with you a grieving moment that I have in the office weekly? And this is, this is not meant to produce guilt, but it is meant to maybe have you think about some conviction points. And perhaps you didn't turn your card in. I understand. But when I go up to our office, we have those who turned in their Who's Your One card. It's a little slip we gave out several months ago. Just one name of someone that does not know Jesus that you're praying for, and then you put their name on it, and we perfed it, and so we got part, you got part, and we put them in the shape of a heart. And there's probably only maybe 30 names up there. And you could say, well, Todd, you should have brought it to us more. You should have communicated better. Accepted. I'm not always great at that. Sometimes I, I don't. Um, you're right, I, I grant you that. But when I go past that board and I see only 30 or 40 names of people in our church who've turned in the name of someone that's lost, that doesn't know Jesus, and we've got 700 plus people in this church, can I just share with you my heart, we should have a lot more than that. There should be a lot more people whose names are turned in who don't know Jesus that we're praying for and that we're opening our groups to, opening our lives to. Honest to God, I'm not trying to prod you with guilt. I'm trying to lead you with integrity. And a church cannot become a country club. A church must remain committed to God's heart that his glory and his weight be felt by all peoples. Would you join me in that? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.